All right, thank you, Josh, and Melanie, and Ben. We'll turn to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. I appreciate that song there at the end. That's a good choice for what we're looking at. Persecution, trusting in our Redeemer's name. Very apt for what we're going to look at in here, verses 7 through 9. So if you'll turn there, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. I'll go ahead and read verse 6 to give you a little context there. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, and from the glory of his power. So we, we looked at verses 5 and 6, continuing our walk through Second Thessalonians. And we saw that the Lord's judgment in verse 5 would be righteous. We talked what that meant, about what that meant. That he would be, in that he is righteous, is that he would be just, that he must repay. And we see that in verse 6, it is only just for God to repay. We saw that he must repay with affliction. There must be a reckoning for sin if God is to be just. For God to be a just judge or a righteous judge, we talked about that word just has the same root in the Greek as the word righteous in verse 5. So for God to be righteous or just, he cannot just overlook sin. There must be a reckoning. For a judge to just overlook a crime, we would say that is an unjust judge, and we would seek for him to be removed from the bench, wouldn't we? And so for God to be just, he cannot just overlook, oh, don't worry about it. There must be payment. There must be a reckoning, a settling of accounts. And so we understand that our forgiveness, those of us who are put, put our faith in Jesus Christ, our forgiveness is because of Jesus' payment for our sin on the cross. And so there is a reckoning that Jesus is the one who pays for our sin and it is on the basis of that that we are forgiven. It is not as if God just overlooks our sin. Ah, oh, don't worry about it. Sweep it under the rug. No, he forgives us of our sin because of the work of Christ on the cross making him or proving him to be a righteous and just judge. It is not as if he is not requiring payment for that sin. He is. He required payment for that sin at the hands of his son in our stead. And so we continue, Paul's continuing his thought here in verse 7, and we're looking at the arrival of that judgment. We see what that judgment entails, the arrival in verse 7, the revelation from heaven of the Lord Jesus Christ in flaming fire with his mighty angels. This is one of those passages as you come across in Scripture as you're reading through that I call a gulp passage. You see the heaviness of it. You see the weightiness. You see you could, it's understandable to be fearful. He, words like flaming fire and and 
the retribution, dealing out retribution, you can also translate that as vengeance. Then in verse 9, the penalty of eternal destruction. And you gulp. That's heavy stuff. So how do we handle this? So what are we to think of it? Sometimes, unfortunately, as we'll talk about, people try to gloss over it and move past it. Well, let's allegorize it. Let's say it's a metaphor. It's not real, it's not real vengeance. It's not real eternal destruction. Because that does not fit with a loving God. And so we, as we'll see, adjust God to our priorities. We adjust God to our preferences. Instead of coming humbly to the word of God and saying, I would believe in God as he truly is. And the way that I know God as he truly is, is his, as he has revealed himself in his word. And the same goes for Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? So as we look at this arrival of that judgment, we will answer three questions. Who, when, and how? Paul answers all three of these for us. Who, when, and how? Number one, who judges? Number two, when does he judge? And number three, how will he judge? Or another way you can put that is, on what basis will he judge? All of this is answered for us here. And we must say, uh, must remember, by the way, that what God has revealed to us, what God has inspired through his Holy Spirit to the pen of the Apostle Paul, we can understand that it was written for a purpose. This is not an accident. Paul didn't just happen to be, you know what, I'm going to talk about judgment. This was meant by God for us to understand and apply. So God desires that we would answer these questions. Who, when, how? This isn't just a theological exercise for people who are in seminary. Hey, you know, let's answer these questions. But this is, this is bread and butter, boots on the ground, practical Christianity for, for the Christian. But also, this is, this is practical for the, the, the human being in the world. The person who's not a Christian, it's important for them to understand, this will come. Judgment will come. And if they understand that then it's obvious that the next question should be, on what basis will the judgment come? What, what, what basis will the judgment be based on? What, what is the criteria what is the, the, that the judge will use to judge people? So is, it's coming. Okay, what is going to be the judgment? How do I escape this terrifying picture of eternal destruction? Well, God in his grace has, has answered that for us in this passage. So who judges? When does he judge? How will he judge, or on what basis? So, number one, first notice that it is the Lord Jesus who will judge. Verses 6 and 7 are clearly describing the righteous judgment of God. In verse 5, Paul is continuing this train of thought. In verse 5, he says, This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For, after all, so Paul is continuing the same thought. Um, he's, he's continuing the same theme of God's righteous judgment. So when he gets to verses 7, he's showing that this, this righteous judgment of God consists in the revelation of Jesus Christ as the judge. Jesus is the, is the one in verses 7 and, 8 who, 7 and 8 who gives relief to those who are afflicted, and he gives vengeance or retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So we see that the, this righteous judge is, in fact, Jesus Christ. And this fits with other scriptures. Let me give you a few. Romans chapter 2, verse 16 says, 
Paul says, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So God will judge through Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. So again, Christ Jesus is the one who judges the living and the dead. Then later on in that same chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 4, this is verse 8. Paul says, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, that is Jesus, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. See, that's what tells us that he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about this Lord who will have this appearing. So it's the Lord Jesus Christ who, who appears in judgment. Then Acts 17.31, Paul again, he says, He, that is God, has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. Who's that man? Having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Who's that? Well, it's Jesus Christ. God will judge the world through Jesus Christ. So then that brings up a question. That you may, something may have popped in your head. A verse may have popped in your head. John chapter 3, verse 17. Sometimes this verse is used to say, no, Jesus is not, is not going to judge. He's not, he's not judgmental. He's full of love. John 3.17 says, this is right after, of course, John 3.16, God so loved the world. Then in verse 17, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. But then you go a couple of chapters over to chapter 5, verses 25 through 29, and Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son, he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of Judgment. So which one is it, John? Why did you say in chapter 3 that, it, that Jesus didn't come to judge the world, but then here in chapter 5, he is, he is judging the world. Which one is it? Then throw in Revelation chapter 19, the one that I read at the beginning of the service. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages War. That's verse 11, Revelation 19, 11. So does Jesus judge or not? Well, I think what we have here is that, and, and we'll talk more about this, but in his first coming, Jesus comes to, to, to be the penalty, to, to, to pay the penalty for sin. So he doesn't come to judge the world, but there is a time, and we see that in John chapter 5, there is a time coming when all will hear the voice of the Son of God. And, so, and so those who have done good, the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to resurrection of damnation, essentially. So Jesus is, is talking about his two comings. He, he comes as, as, a, as a baby in a manger, and, he, and he, he goes willingly to his death on the cross as payment for sin. But when he comes again, as shown in Revelation 19, he comes as the righteous judge to wage war against God's enemies. Now, why is this important? It's important because you must see Jesus as he truly is. There are several ways that we can adjust Jesus to our liking. Let me give you three. Maybe you've heard these. 
there's some there's some variation of this out there, uh, especially in uh, what passes as uh, evangelical Christianity. So much of it has become shallow and, and not reflecting the Jesus of Scripture. Let me give you a few examples. Number one, you may have heard something like, Jesus is humble and lowly and meek, and so he would never offer a crossword. He would never be mean. He would never be full of wrath. Jesus is a humble, lowly friend. You see the danger there because it's true. The Bible does say that he was humble and lowly. But see, you're conflating the comings. He comes humble and lowly, but he, even then he comes in warning of sin and judgment and hell, but he's saying, your relief is here. The kingdom of God is among you. Your hope of salvation is here in me, he's saying. And he's warning about the judgment to come in which he will come again and require payment for sin. And so people adjust that. They, 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 let's get rid of the Revelation 19 Jesus. He's uncomfortable. He's got a tattoo on his thigh. It's weird. He's got a mouth coming, out, a sword coming out of his mouth. That's scary. I don't like that Jesus. I like the Jesus that's just quiet. He doesn't say a crossword. Let me be clear. That's not the Jesus of Scripture. You're not looking at the fully formed Jesus of Scripture. Number two, here's another variation of it. Jesus is cool. It's the church that is judgmental. You ever heard that one? Jesus is all about loving your neighbor. Jesus is sweet and kind all the time. The church is super judgmental. Uh, You should read in Revelation 19. And be like, does this sound like the coolness that you're describing? you're, you're, You're describing a Jesus that is cool with sin. Ah, don't worry about it. You know what that does? It's what we talked about last week. It, 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 it diminishes the holiness of God. It diminishes the pure righteousness of God, the glorious brightness of his perfection in Jesus Christ. To say that he's like, ah, don't worry about sin. No. God is holy and just and perfect, and sin is an offense against his very character, his nature. And so for him to just overlook sin, again, as we talked last week, is for him to be not God. Not righteous, not just. And so Jesus must reflect the scriptures. He is meek and lowly. He is is loving. He reaches to the least of these. But at the same time, he requires payment for sin. He judges sin. Number three. You may have heard this distortion of Jesus. God the Father is the angry one. Jesus is the kind one. You ever heard that one? That God is the angry, belligerent father, and Jesus goes in there and says, Dad, Dad, calm, calm, calm. I'll take care of it. You ever heard that? Completely foreign to Scripture. Absolutely foreign to Scripture. Notice that the father judges through the son, and this is not the son reluctantly, oh, my dad wants me to judge the earth. No, he comes in, and it says here in Revelation 19, he treads the winepress of the fierce fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, and a sword comes out of his mouth to strike down the nations. This is not Jesus reluctantly doing this. This is Jesus in his holy justice, his holy righteousness, having the same same essence of the Father that to hate sin and to judge sinners. This this, This is Jesus being Jesus. We don't ever want to pit the father against the son as if the the son is mollifying the father. Oh, 
Calm down, I'll take care of it. No, you know who sent Jesus to the cross to die for sinners? Father. Father did. The same Father who hates sin, who, who will judge sinners, who wages war against his enemies, who are the ones who are, who are rebelling against him in sin, he's the one that sends his son to die for sinners. And so we all eventually will accept Jesus Christ as he is. Meaning, we all will accept him, must accept him, as our righteous judge. The question is, will you bow to him as Savior as well? Will you bow to him as Savior as well? But to put it another way, as I mentioned, in his first coming, Jesus paid for sin. In his second coming, he will require payment for sin. So either he pays for your sin, or you will. And he will require payment from you. So either he makes the payment for you, or he requires payment from you. So do not mistake who Jesus is. Do not picture him as this bro that just hangles, hang, hangs out with you and, and sins with you and is just cool with it all. No, Jesus, as he is holy and righteous and pure, hates sin and will judge it. Secondly, Paul answers the question of when this judgment will take place. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. That word translated revealed here in the New American Standard in the Greek is apocalypsis. You may have heard that word apocalyptic. That just means revelation or reveal. So Jesus is revealed from heaven. And so this uh, apocalypsis here, this revelation in verse 7, I think it makes sense in the context of 2 Thessalonians and 1 Thessalonians to understand that it is the same thing as, as the parousia. In the Greek, there you see it in chapter 2, verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the Greek there, that's the parousia. That's the coming of our Lord Jesus. I think it makes sense to put these together as the same event. This revelation of Jesus is the same thing as his coming. We see it there in verse 1 of chapter 2. We also see in verse 8, that word parousia again, and the end by the appearance of his coming. We also see his coming referred to in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and chapter 5. Let me give you a couple of reasons why I think, let me give you three reasons why I think this revelation of Jesus in judgment is the same thing that Paul's referring to as his parousia or his coming. Number one, it's because of the context. Through Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, Paul's talking about Jesus' coming. So it'd be odd for him to throw in here in chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians something completely different, but sounding like his coming. Without making it clear, he's talking about a different event here. So I think in the context, it makes most sense to understand that Jesus' coming is the same thing as his apocalypsis or his revelation. Secondly, if you look here in verse 10 of chapter 1, it says he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day. Sorry, uh, uh, verse 7, he's with his mighty angels. And if you look in chapter 3 of of 1 Thessalonians, verse 13, it says, so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Now, one way that that can be translated there, saints, is holy ones. So it is possible that what he's saying there in 1 Thessalonians 3.13 is that the Lord Jesus is coming with his 
angels or his holy ones. That could be a reference to angels there, which would fit here with chapter, chapter 1, verse 7 in 2 Thessalonians, that he's revealed with his mighty angels. Also, it says that he comes from heaven. He's revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Well, we saw that in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10, that they are waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. And then chapter 4, verse 16 of uh, 1 Thessalonians says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. So I think if you add all this together, it makes sense to think of the apocalypsis as the same thing as the parousia, or the revelation as the same thing as the coming of Christ. So all that to say, I think what is described here is the second coming of Jesus. The second coming of Jesus. As I mentioned in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I think that's a reference in 5 to the second coming of Jesus and not actually the rapture. I think here is the same thing. This is a reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ when he comes to judge the earth. You'll notice too that it says here that he comes with his mighty angels in flaming fire. And in Revelation 19.12, it's a similar phrase in the Greek to describe his eyes are a flame of fire. So he's coming in judgment, in, in fire, to judge the enemies of God. In Matthew 24, I'll give you a little further evidence. Matthew chapter 24, there's a reference to the second coming. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So you notice several things. One, his angels are with him, as we see here in Second Thessalonians 1. They go and gather the elect from the four winds. You notice there's a great trumpet. We saw that in First Thessalonians chapter 4 with a trumpet sounding. And then if you go down through the rest of this chapter in Matthew 25, you see that the context is clearly judgment. Verses 37 through 39, Jesus says, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. So this second coming of Christ is clearly associated with him coming in judgment. Judgment. And then also through the rest of chapter 25 of Matthew, he ends by saying, he tells a parable of a wicked servant. And it ends by saying in verse 51, of the wicked servant, will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so all this to say, at his second coming, Jesus Christ will settle accounts. Sin will be punished on sinners, and God's holiness will be vindicated. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 3, that, that God has, has seemingly overlooked sin for, for centuries. People say, why does this wickedness abound on the earth? And so at the judgment, God will show himself holy in that he's like, I have not overlooked this. I have not let this slide. I am settling accounts to show myself just and righteous and pure. And I'm going to do that by punishing sinners and redeeming sinners at the same time. And so Jesus will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty when he comes. You're meant to, as you hear that, tremble. God's wrath is not meant to be idle speculation. It's meant to be a sword hanging over your head. You're meant to listen and say, 
How can man be saved? How can anyone escape the just judgment of God? What will the sentences be? What will be the outcome of this? You're meant to go look for answers, not just, oh, well, it's the way it goes. No, what, what can I do to be saved? That's the right answer when you hear about the judgment of God. First, let's notice what the sentences will be. What will be the sentences handed down by this righteous judge? Well, back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, you see first there in, in verse 8. He's giving vengeance or retribution. Then in verse 9, he's giving eternal destruction. And then the third thing is that you are excluded from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. All that is for the same group of people. They will get vengeance or retribution, they will get eternal destruction, and they will get exclusion from God and from the glory of his power. So that's one group of people. Then there's another group of people who get, in verse 7, they get relief. They get rest. They get, in verse 6, they get justice. They get vindicated. God says, these are my ones that you have persecuted. Now I will show the world they are mine. Their persecution was for a purpose. They were not overlooked. They are mine. So you get vindicated, number two. And number three, you get the opposite of what they get in verse nine. Instead of being excluded from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power, they get to be in the presence of the Lord forever. These are the sentences handed down. Notice there's only, and we'll talk about this in a moment, there's only two options. You get vengeance or retribution. You get eternal destruction. You get exclusion from God and the glory of his power. Or on this side, you get relief or rest. You get justice. You get get to be in the presence of the Lord forever. There's only two groups. Meaning there's no sliding scale here. This is is a heresy. This is a a false teaching so often seen in the church that somehow God's going to judge on a sliding scale like, well, you tried. You did the best you could. I, I, I factored in all the, all the environmental effects on your life, your background, your culture, doing all these things, and you did the best you could with what you had, so I'll make up the difference and you're going to go to heaven. Completely false. Why? Because that would mean that God is just overlooking sin. That would call into question his righteous judgment. Every sin is an act, as R.C. Sproul says, of cosmic treason. Every sin is you looking at God and saying, you're not God, I am. You don't tell me what to do, I tell you what I do. I determine for myself. So for God to just be like, ah, you know, you tried, is to, is to call into question not only God's righteousness, but is to call into question what the Bible says about our utter depravity, our utter wickedness. Even the things that we could call good in our lives, apart from being in Jesus Christ, apart from the sanctifying work of the Spirit, is mixed in with selfish motives, is mixed in with wickedness. As in, I will do this good thing for my community or for my family because it makes them treat me better. It makes me feel good. It, builds, it makes me feel like I'm righteous. So I do these good things so I can feel like I'm righteous, so I can earn a place with God. That is utter wickedness. You say, well, that's good. That's some level of good. No, it's not. It's you elevating yourself above God. I will serve myself rather than abase myself at the throne. That's anathema. That's condemned in Scripture. 
There's no sliding scale. You are under God's retribution or you get relief. Which one would you rather be in? I think that's pretty obvious. Would you rather God's just vengeance fall on you like a mountain and crush you? Or would you rather be in rest in Jesus Christ? Have relief from your struggles, relief from your affliction, relief from the fight against sin, relief from persecution. Those are the only two options. So now, Josh, tell me, how will he judge? How will we be judged? Very clearly there in verse 8, it tells us two criteria. Do you know God? Do you obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus? It's the two criteria. Those who do not know God and those who do not obey God, those are the ones who get vengeance, get retribution. They pay the penalty, verse 9, of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. They're the ones who are, are, are banished, are condemned, are damned because they do not know God and they do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That's it. Do you know him? Do you obey the gospel? Okay, but what does that mean? First, let's look at what it means to know God. We get a clue to this if you turn a, chapter, a page to the left. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 5, we get a clue. Paul says, Let each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, verse 5, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. So the Gentiles do not know God, and that results in their lustful passion. They do not know how to possess their vessel in sanctification and honor. They do not know how to abstain from sexual immorality, verse 3, because they do not know God. Okay? We get another clue in Galatians chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. What does it mean when Paul says, know God? By the way, when you're studying Scripture and you want to understand what a writer of Scripture says, I encourage you to look at other places where they have used similar language. This can kind of help you understand what that writer means by using that phrase. So that's what we're doing here. Paul has used this phrase in 2 Thessalonians and in 1 Thessalonians. So let's look at other places where he has used this phrase to kind of see if we can shed light on what he means by it. So that's where we come to Galatians chapter 4, what Paul has written there. Galatians 4, 7 through 9. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time when you did not know God, there you go, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? So in context here, Paul's talking about you were, you were under the law, and, you, and you keep, you keep, you're, you're free from that, but now you're turning back to it for salvation. You're like, you keep going back to these elemental things, but you're, you're a son now. You're in Jesus Christ. You're free. So why are you going back to these things? Why are you listening to these, these people who are telling you that you have to keep the law, and you have to be a good Jew, you have to follow Judaism, and that, that's where salvation is? No, you are free in Christ. You are a son, and if a son, then an heir. But notice the phrases he uses. When you did not know God, you were a slave. But now that you have come to know God, verse 9, that's put with in verse 7, you're no longer a slave but a son. So to know God is to be a son. To know God is to be a son and an heir through God. 
You see that in verse 7. And if a son, then an heir through God. So to know, to, to know God is to be a son and heir and not to give in to lustful passion or, to, or, or be a slave or to be a Gentile. So then the question is, how then are we to become sons of God? Well, using the same strategy of seeing what Paul says elsewhere about becoming sons of God, you can turn to the left and look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 through 29. Look what he says. For you are all sons of God, how? Through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free man, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. So you see, when Paul says in chapter 4 that you no longer a slave but a son, and, and if a son then an heir, he's hearkening back to this. You are a son and an heir. How? Through faith in Christ Jesus. Brings to mind Jesus telling Nicodemus that you must be born again. How can I be born again such that I become a son of God? Can a man crawl into his womb? Into the womb again, Nicodemus asks? No, you're born from above. You're born again as a, as a son of God through faith, through, through uni- being united to Christ by faith in him. So it's through the grace of God in Jesus Christ that you can become a son. So this knowing God is not the same as the sense that we read in Romans chapter 1, where it says, though they knew God, they did, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. This is not just knowing that God exists, as they do in Romans 1, but actually knowing him by faith in Christ. In this way, you can actually honor him and give thanks. You know, like if someone says, do you know so-and-so? Like they, Let's say, do you know uh, Justin Trudeau? There's several ways you can answer that. Yes, I know him in the sense that I know that he's a prime minister. I know what he looks like. I know some of the actions he's done. I know the office that he is in. So I know him. But there's another sense in which you don't know him personally. You have not talked to him face-to-face. You're not friends with him. So that's kind of what we mean here. There's a way that in Romans chapter 1 where people know that there's a God. They have a sense that there's a God, but they do not honor him. They do, not, they do not honor him and give thanks. In other words, they do not honor him as God. They don't see, yes, there's a God, him being creator, me being creature, submission. That's having this, this kind of abstract view of God rather than knowing him as he is revealed in Scripture and embracing him as friend, as known by you, as being in a relationship with him. And see, Paul is saying here in Galatians chapter 3 that this becoming to know God or be known by God in Galatians chapter, uh, as it says in uh, chapter 4, which I love that phrase, which I'll mention in a moment. But you, you come to know God and be known by him through faith in Christ Jesus. That is how you come into relationship with the Father. That's how you come to be son of God. And so if you want to escape the judgment, that is the means by which you know God. He says, those who do not know God will be dealt vengeance. So, how do you know God? Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? You understand that your sin is an offense against a holy God and that he will justly condemn you to hell. 
And to escape the wrath of God, you put your faith in Jesus Christ and his payment on the cross for you. You say, my salvation is there at the cross. It is not in my good works. It's not in being a good, trying to be a good person, not, a, not being a church member, not getting baptized, not all these things. This is not what I offer to God for salvation. I offer only Christ. And you are a son and heir. And you know God. Or rather, as Paul says, you have become known by God. Now, What does it mean to obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus? That's the next phrase. You think, should it not say, believe the gospel of our Lord Jesus? Who do not know God and those who do not believe the gospel of our Lord Jesus? But this kind of language is used elsewhere in Scripture. 1 Peter 4, verse 17. Peter says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God. And we get similar language elsewhere. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. A great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. We find in Romans six seventeen, You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Hebrews 5, 9. He became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. See, sometimes we read passages like that and we're like, should that not say he became to all those who believe in him the source of eternal salvation? Then in John 3.36, we see, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And then in Hebrews 3.18 and 19 says, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. I talk about this often, but I think it's such a danger that we Protestants can fall into. We, we look at the Roman Catholicism where, and we're looking at their works righteousness and they're saved by going to church and saved by baptism and saved by being a good person and saved by communion and, and, and confession and all these things. And we run in the opposite direction. And we say it's only faith. And that's tricky because it is only faith. But faith will be shown by obedience. In fact, I think that's what Hebrews 3 is showing us here. It says, they did not enter his rest. Remember, these are the people of Israel going through the wilderness, and they weren't able to enter into the promised land because, he says, they were disobedient. Then in the very next sentence, he says, so we see that they were not able to enter because of disobedience. No, unbelief. See, in Scripture, unbelief or lack of faith or not believing in Jesus is put with disobedience. If you believe in Jesus, you will obey. And as I say so often, this is, no, this is common sense. This is, how we, this is how we think normally, but sometimes when we take it to the Scriptures, we, we like, we're so, I think, afraid of legalism that we're like, oh, throw out obedience. We don't want to get that mixed up. Yes, we're, you're right. We don't want to get that mixed up. But if someone truly believes something, Truly, guess what? They will act on it. You say, no, Josh, I can think of exceptions. No, it doesn't mean that they're going to perfectly act on it, but generally speaking, if you believe something, it will be shown by your actions. That's why when someone says, I believe in Jesus, but then you see their life as one of wickedness and evil, you say, I have good reason to suspect that you are not a believer because though you profess Jesus, that you believe in him, your life doesn't reflect that. 
Your life would reflect that if you truly believed in him because true obedience follows true faith. That's the order. You have to get that order right. True obedience follows true faith. Now, some scholars think that here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 that there are actually two categories of people. The first category is those who don't know God, and the second category is those who do not obey the gospel. Sometimes they refer to these two groups as Jews and Gentiles. But I think it makes more sense to see these as two descriptors of the same group of people, namely unbelievers, those who have rejected God, rejected his son, Jesus Christ. Because as, I, as the verses above show, true faith will be accompanied by obedience. In other words, how can you know God by faith in Christ and not obey him? You see God for what he is. You see Jesus Christ for who he is. You're like, nah, I don't want to obey. No, if you see them and you believe them, you will obey. Secondly, how can you obey the gospel of God without knowing God? That essentially is legalism or Pharisaism, which fail in the attempt. It's clear that when Jesus comes against the Pharisees, they are, they are, they are striving and, 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 and working and, and struggling at keeping these laws upon laws upon laws. And Jesus shows up and he's like, you don't know God. How do I know you know God? I'm right here. And you don't know me. Right? So you're doing all these things, but your heart is far from me as it says in the Old Testament. That's legalism. That's an attempt to obey the gospel without actually knowing God. So then why does Paul use these two descriptors if he's describing one group of people? Well, I think these two descriptors wonderfully demolish the two great errors that we often see in the visible church, and that is antinomianism and legalism. Antinomianism and legalism. Both of these descriptors demolish them. Legalism is somebody saying, I obey and try to be good, but I don't know God through faith in Christ. Pharisee. You say, I don't, Josh, I don't know anyone who says that. But what I mean is somebody who's trying to know God by their works, by their obedience, by them being good. I know God or I can, I, can, I can raise myself to God. I can have this relationship with God by my works that I bring to him and say, See, is this good enough? Can I be with you because of these things that I have done? That's legalism. They don't know God. They're trying to know him by obeying him. But in fact, because they do not know him, they cannot obey him. And the second error, which is antinomianism, which is just a big word for anti-law. That is the person who says, in essence, I know God, so I don't need to obey him. You may have met people who prayed the sinner's prayer when they were young, and then lived a life of wickedness far from the church, far from the scriptures, far from obedience to God, and you ask them, are you a Christian? Yep, I believed in him at an early age. That's someone who thinks that they know God, so they don't need to obey him. It doesn't work like that. If you know God, you will obey him. And you see how that neatly demolishes both of these errors? These are like two ditches that we can easily fall into, that, that even as Christians, we can be tempted toward one or the other. And so this wonderfully says, if you know God, you will walk in obedience. Why? Because God's grace by his spirit through the word is, is, is empowering you, is strengthening you. 
is spurring you to obedience. So you can say, this is all a work of God. Even my obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ is God-given. We do not want to limit the gospels to just, I said this prayer and believed one time. No, God has given me this, in his grace, has given me this faith that lasts a lifetime and is proven by obedience. So be careful that you don't come to the throne of judgment and you're standing in one of these camps. I'm going to trust to my legalism. You may not word it that way. I'm going to trust to my works. I'm going to trust to myself or an antinomianism. I'm going to trust to this, this faith I have that has no evidence in works. You will be crushed. You will pay the penalty of eternal damnation. Paul is showing that the true son and heir in Jesus Christ knows God by faith in Christ and from that obeys the gospel of their Lord Jesus Christ. There is no Christian who does not obey. Faith and and obedience are closely related. We must be careful not to get the order wrong. Faith, obedience comes from faith. But we must be careful not to discard obedience for fear of works righteousness. This faith and obedience being closely related, we can also see that in John 3.36, I read it earlier, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life. So Jesus puts that believing in the Son with obeying the Son. And if you do not obey the Son, if you do not believe the Son, which is shown by your obedience to the Son, you, the wrath of God will abide on you. Let me give you another verse that, show, that sums this up nicely. This is Paul in Titus 1.16. This is what he says. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and, listen, disobedient and worthless for any good deed. So he says they profess. They say to know God, but they show by their deeds that they actually do not know God. How do you know? Because they are detestable. They're disobedient and they don't do any, they're worthless for any good deed. Someone who knows God truly will be changed. And so to close, two points of application. Number one, the hammer will fall. I wish I could convey to you the weight of this. Language fails me in describing the weight of eternal destruction that rests on those who are apart from God. It is a dreadful, dreadful thing. I think too often the church skips over it like I mentioned, or even we talk about it in kind of a glib way. That's why even when we use the word hell in a, in a way that's just flippant or, or, or we're using it as, as a, an exclamation word or something, we're not realizing the weight of it. This is eternal destruction. This is eternal damnation. Do we have that fear in our, in our eyes? Do we have our fear, that fear of, that, that if, you're, if you're outside of Christ, if you're away from God, that fear of, of damnation, that, 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 that threat, that sword hanging over your head, or do we have that holy, reverent fear of a child of God saying, he will show himself glorious in judgment. And it's dreadful, yes but it's also just and good and pure. And so that drives me to think of my neighbor 
That drives me to think of my family member. That drives me to share the gospel with people because they will undergo this damnation and I do not want that. I want them to see and, and savor Jesus Christ and come to relief in him, not damnation. Retribution will come. Payment will be made. Payment for sin will be made by you or by Jesus on the cross. There is no other way. So, sinner, would you have Jesus pay for your sin? Or would you pay for it? I have laid before you the the payment you will pay. It will be vengeance. It will be Jesus coming with a sword coming out of his mouth, and it will be coming to cut you down. Do you see the weight? Of this passage, do you see the weight of your sin bearing you down to hell? Well, Josh, don't don't scare people into heaven. The scriptures do. Paul is saying flaming fire. He's he's clearly saying these things to remind the people of the, the Thessalonica, yes, that their relief is coming. But as we read it, he's putting in here verse 8. You think, well, he's writing to people who already know God and who already obey the gospel of Lord Jesus. But God in his providence, in his wisdom, in his sovereignty has put this in front of you today to see this is the cost. Apart from faith in Jesus Christ, you will be Destroyed eternally. And as we'll talk about next week, or whenever, I don't know, when the Christmas schedule. Oh, okay, that's just annihilationism. I'll just be destroyed and that'll be the end of me. Do not take comfort there. This means you will be destroyed forever. Not that you're destroyed and then your destruction or your cease to exi- you're, you're ceasing to exist lasts forever, but that you are destroyed. You live, in, in a sense, in destruction forever. As Revelation says, the smoke of their torment goes up forever. That's what he means by eternal destruction. So do not take comfort in the, in the thought that I will just end. No, you won't. You will go on in unimaginable torment. Why? Because your offense was, an against, was against an eternal, infinite, glorious God. And so the, the, the payment for your crime is eternal and infinite and shows him glorious in his judgment. So I urge you, sinner, turn to Christ in faith. Say, here is my only hope. I put all my faith in his payment on the cross for me. When I come to the judgment seat, I will have nothing to offer, nothing to commend myself for for salvation to him except the blood of Christ. And so I grab it wholeheartedly. And by grabbing it wholeheartedly means I believe in it such that I show it in my obedience. I love him. I embrace him. I follow him. Are you ready for that hammer to fall? Not only will it fall, it must fall. As we talked about last week, God will show himself. He must show himself just by punishing sin on sinners and by redeeming those who put their faith in his son, Jesus. And that wonderfully shows his justice. Number two, final point of application. For those of you who have put your faith in Jesus Christ, relief will come to you. 
Another way that you can translate this word relief is rest. Rest will come to you. You see, we look at, at Revelation 19, we see Jesus come, and he's got that King of Kings, Lord of Lords on his thigh. He's got, a, he's got flaming fires for eyes. He's got a sword coming out. He's, he's got a robe dipped in blood, and he's riding a horse, and an army's coming with him. And we don't say, ah! We say, there he is. There's my Jesus. Relief comes. Rest comes. The joy of my salvation comes. He whom my soul loves comes. Isn't he glorious? You see, those flames of fire of her eyes and that sword coming out of his mouth is not aimed at you because that was on the cross that God paid for your sin. That sword is aimed at your enemies, the ones who have persecuted you. That, 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 that judgment that comes, that new world that comes, that new heavens and earth comes, comes with it, the eradication of sin. And you say, oh yes, I would be free of it. Relieve me of this sin. Relieve me of this sinful world. I would be in your presence, my Savior, forever. So Christian, take heart. Look at the coming of Jesus with a smile on your face and say, my beloved comes. My Jesus, my Savior comes. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Jesus, when he comes, will not be terrifying for the Christian. He comes to, to, to signify, to show, I'm coming and I'm bringing rest with me for my people. 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul puts it this way. I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He's talking about his coming death. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Why does Paul love his appearing? That's his Lord. That's his righteous judge. That's the one who judges right, righteously. And so for Paul, there is laid up for him, as if, on, uh, as if, in, a, as if in a safety deposit box in the vault, there is laid up for him a crown of righteousness. So he looks at the appearing of his Savior Jesus Christ with hope and joy, knowing that this is, his, this is his beloved and also that he has the reward of rest and a crown of righteousness. And so until then, saint, do what he does in verse 7. Look to that day in hope and expectation and joy. And in the meantime, fight the good fight. Finish the course. Keep the faith with your eyes fixed on the imminent coming of your Lord Jesus. Why? Because you love his appearing. Let's pray. Oh God, don't let anyone here who's under conviction sidestep it or try to sidestep it. Don't let them try to slip out from under it, try to rationalize it, try to say, oh, another day, another day, another time, another place. Let the full weight of your terrible, terrifying, 
righteous judgment fall on them. Let the conviction, the weight of it fall on them. So that now they turn to you in repentance. Now. Because on that day it will be too late. Convict them of sin powerfully, Father. Show them their only hope is in Jesus Christ. Faith in Him. They can't be good enough. They can't try hard enough. Even just trying to obey to be, to be saved doesn't work. There must be faith, true faith in Jesus Christ. Father, I ask that you regenerate them. Wake them up. Open up their eyes to see the glory of your Son and of your gospel. For those of us who do believe, Father, who are waiting for that day and love his appearing, give us hope, expectation, joyful expectation. With our eyes looking at that appearing, at that judgment, and working now, knowing that rest is coming, working in light of the Sabbath rest that is coming, work hard to spend ourselves for your glory here, to raise godly homes, to preach the gospel, to be salt and light everywhere, to fight the good fight of faith. And when we are persecuted, Father, help us to trust in your Redeemer's name, to trust in our Redeemer's name. One day we will be vindicated. We will be shown to be yours. And our tears will be wiped away. And we will live in your presence. What a promise that is. In your presence forever. In the presence of the Lamb who was slain for us. Let that be our joy and hope. And expectation as we struggle and strive. And are afflicted. Life is but a vapor. Then comes judgment and rest. Thank you, Father, that you give us rest even here now. Sabbath rest. Give us joy and expectation of the future. Hope in our brothers and sisters in Christ. In the church. In your word, by your spirit. You are good to us, Father. And we anticipate with joy your goodness shown to us for eternity. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.